This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. You're listening to Valley Football First and Goal, the official podcast of the Missouri Valley Football Conference on the lineupmedia.fm network. Now, your host, Kelly Burke. Welcome to the MVFC First in Gold podcast. I'm Kelly Burke, and today's guest is more than just my broadcast partner on the Missouri Valley Football Game of the Week. He's also become a friend. Dayton Hughes is a former two-sport star at Iowa. He enjoyed a standout career in the NFL with the Kansas City Chiefs. And now he works among several jobs as a broadcaster. <laughs> That's how yeah. I know him. So, Danon, welcome to the show. This has been a long time coming. I know. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about the season. Obviously, working with you again, another fun season to be, and um, you know, happy to be on the podcast. College football kicks off this Thursday. So, yeah. what are some of the storylines that you will be closely following this year in the Missouri Valley Football Conference? Well, obviously, the first thing that always comes to mind is North Dakota State. If their reign will still remain supreme, uh, I guess you could say. And then who will be those other teams? You know, uh, UNI is always, uh, you know, those scrappy blue-collar kids from Iowa with Mark Farley and that kind of linebacker attitude. So they're, they're always fun to watch. They have a lot of great talent. And then you saw some the emergence of other schools over the past few years, whether it was the Jack Rabbits in South Dakota State or even South Dakota, uh, you know, came onto the scene. And uh, Western Illinois had some firepower as well. So what's cool about the Valley Conference and Valley football in general is that every week is a treat. And you and I get the, you know, the huge blessing to be a part of each broadcast every week and to watch the emergence of teams, how teams battle. And it almost primes you can you can understand how a team like North Dakota State can go all the way because they play most of their worst battles or toughest battles during the regular season. You're obviously an alum of Iowa, so what are some Iowa storylines that you'll be watching? Because <laughs> I know that's important to you, and you're always checking in on yes. the, the scores and the games when we're you know when we're out on on site at broadcasts. Yeah, like I see, I'm repping my Hawkeye <laughs> stuff right here. My Hawkeye stuff. Yeah, you know, well Iowa. Uh, you know, I hate to say it in this vein because I don't want to jinx anything, although I don't believe in jinxes. Uh, they are, have a relatively easy schedule this year. And I say easy because they have their toughest teams, for the most part, at home. I think they play five of their first six games at home. They play Wisconsin and Nebraska at home. So I have high expectations and high hopes for this team. Uh, they return their quarterback. Uh, obviously, they lost a little bit of firepower on defense with Jackson. Uh, going to the NFL, and he's doing great things in Green Bay. Uh, so I, I'm cautious, but I feel as good about this program and what they can overcome this year as I have in several years. So I'm looking forward to it. They got a, a Valley Conference foe uh, early in the season where they got to go against UNI, and then they got Iowa State. And, you know, so the list continues to roll through. So it's not going to be a cakewalk, but they have the luxury of having them on their home turf at Kinnick Stadium so yeah it should be fun when you have a team like a North Dakota State who has been not only dominant in the Missouri Valley Football Conference but in the FCS as a whole 
what will it take for other Valley teams to model that type of success? Well, well, Kelly, this this podcast was going really well until you just brought up North Dakota State <laughs> because they beat they beat my Hawkeyes. I think that's the last non conference game the Hawkeyes lost on their home turf. So I'm going to cut it. I'm yeah, it. podcast <laughs> over. <laughs> no, North Dakota State has been phenomenal, and and when you watch that program and how it's just continued to stay consistent. Um, no FCS team wants to play them. No FBS team wants to play them. Uh, they are uh, the cream of the crop. They are a team. They're you know they're part of a conference that I consider in the Missouri Valley Football Conference as the SEC of uh, you know the uh, the one the old one double A I guess you can say. And um, to me, they're a scary team for anybody to play. And I believe what is it, they are 6-0 and against their last six division, I mean, FBS teams or 5-0, yeah, and I think I believe I think so. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with the likes of Kansas and K-State and Iowa and Iowa State, and the list goes on. So they have played quality football, and they show that they can compete against anybody. And now you see a lot of the emergence of guys in the NFL from, that, um, from those schools like that. And obviously the number one guy is Carson Wentz and what he was able to accomplish uh, up there in Fargo. So it's exciting to see. Sometimes it's a little unfair because they're so good. But uh, I give a lot of credit to the other schools, the, the Southern Illinois, the Illinois States, and everybody that they get up and they fight against that team. And if you look at their records, I believe they've, they've had at least one loss in conference mm-hmm. for the last few years. So there's always one team that's really – really ready and and reeling at the opportunity to knock the king off its throne and it always happens in valley play yeah the south dakota states knocked him off in in the regular season the last two yep. years now of course yep. ndsu got revenge last year by by winning it all but <laughs> it'll be interesting to th- see how it plays out this year yeah, absolutely and that's what's going to be fun i mean taryn christian is back there in uh, south dakota state and um, they lose some of their firepower with Dallas Goddard gone and Winnicky gone. Um, so somebody has to fill in those slots. And there's still some some good, strong defense to be played up there. Uh, Rosa Boom, I believe, is up there still at that linebacker position. So there's some quality play that to be had. And in Western Illinois, we have them in the first week, two games in the first yeah. weekend, first time. It's going to be fun. It's going to be challenging, but it's going to be fun. So a lot of excitement to be had in September and October. So speaking of the first week, I would love for you to just get into briefly what your travel schedule looks like, because (laughs) especially week one, we have the Thursday night game, but we also have the Saturday night game. But then you also have you you work the chief stuff into there, too. So it gets a little crazy for you driving and flying all over the place. Absolutely. I, I basically at. Labor Day have to take a deep breath and hold it until Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. That's that's kind of how I look at it. I, I, I've been very fortunate and blessed that I I do the KU football broadcast, their home opener. I do the Chiefs. Now I'm doing a pregame show. Nice on Facebook Live, and then the postgame show that I've been doing for the last five years, or actually the last fifteen years, I should say. Um, so my schedule will be when Valley play comes along and we start our broadcast, I believe on the 27th of September, uh, I'll fly to that game at Indiana state. I'll come back home. Uh, then I'll head up to Western Illinois for the game on Saturday, somewhere in between. I'll have to 
go and check out my daughter who plays volleyball at Truman State. Uh, I also have a daughter that's playing volleyball in high school that's a senior here in Lee Summit, Missouri. So I have to juggle that on the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, go to Western Illinois on Saturday, hustle back to Kansas City, and be ready for the pregame and postgame show on every Sunday during the season. So that's the biggest juggling part is wherever I am in the Midwest that I have to figure out a way with my travels to make sure I'm back by 9 o'clock a.m., 9.30 a.m. to prepare for the pregame show for the Chiefs on that Sunday afternoon. Not a lot of sleep going on, especially uh, especially last year when on a road trip, uh, Mike Kern, we couldn't find the car keys in the parking lot. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Yes. But you know as well as I do, when I'm in the car, as long as I'm the, uh, the passenger, I'm knocked out. That's I, true. I can sleep anywhere. So I get my beauty rest, much needed beauty rest wherever possible. So, How does a Jersey boy who grew up in Bayonne, New Jersey, <laughs> end up going to college in Iowa? Hey, forget about it. I lost my accent a little bit, so I really got to work on it. Uh, Who died and left you boss? Actually, you know what? Uh, It was a great, great change of pace for me. I grew up five minutes from New York City, uh, born and raised. All my family has always been in New Jersey. I think I was one of the first people to kind of venture out, especially into the Midwest. Uh, But I didn't have a whole bunch of common sense back then, but I did know that if I stayed anywhere near home, as I hung out in New York City, I always tell the stories, you know, when I was in high school, I was hanging out with Mike Tyson and Chris Rock and and Tommy Davidson and going to clubs in New York with neighbors that I grew up with that were bartenders at different New York clubs. So, you know, I lived a different kind of life yeah. uh, back then. And But I did have enough sense to say, you know what, if I stay anywhere near here, I'm not going to be worth anything in college. So, Iowa came knocking, Nebraska came knocking. They were the first or the only two West schools. Everybody up on the East Coast, Penn State, Rutgers, Syracuse, all recruited me. But I wanted to get away from home. And the key thing is I wanted to play baseball. Okay. And Iowa committed. Hayden Fry came in my living room with his cowboy boots on. <laughs> and Texas twang and wowed me and my parents and committed that I could uh, play baseball. And uh, that was the selling point when I went to visit Iowa. It was a great visit. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. One thing I love about you is the stories you tell. And (laughs) so take us back to college and a a particular softball class that you took (laughs) where you, you, I guess the best way to put it is you sort of minimized your skills as a baseball player to an unknowing teacher. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, everybody has to, I don't want anybody to think that I, you know, I took cookie cutter or vanilla courses or cakewalk courses. You have to take a PE in college, right? So I, I'm looking up and down the list. The first story is I took, I grew up with a ping pong table. Okay. And we used to have ping pong tournaments. So I took ping pong. Okay. One of my PE. And the teacher came in and we were messing around and the teacher said, if anybody, I acted like I didn't know how to play ping pong. <laughs> and um, the teacher said, if anybody can beat me, you don't have to come again. And then I whipped them. And then I didn't have to come again. So that was one of my first kind of ways to kind of trick teachers. So then the next year, my senior year, uh, fall semester, I'm done. You know, I'll be done with football, done with college, going to play pro baseball. And uh, got, I picked softball. And uh, so I went out to the softball complex. And the teacher didn't know who I was. Now, there's, you know, I'm the only two-sport athlete on the campus. 
you know, I was all Big Ten in both sports, but somehow she didn't know who I was. And But here's the thing, Kelly, <laughs> not a lot of people know. <laughs> my first name is Robert. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. So on obviously on the first day of class and registry, everything says Robert Hughes. Okay. So she didn't put two and two together that I was Dana Hughes. So once I saw that, I was like, you know, pounced on it. I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to make this fun. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I acted like I didn't know how to play softball. Like I, I ran the wrong way. I hit the ball, ran the third base first. And, you know, where where's left field? Where's right field? So long story short, I got most improved in the class. <laughs> Uh, and the kicker is when I signed with baseball as a junior, the first thing I bought was a brand new Jeep Cherokee Okay. and the license plate was two sport. So two sport athlete. And I pulled up to class every day with that Jeep and she never paid attention to it. <laughs> and after the last class, after I got most improved and I got an A in the class, um, because by the, by the last class, obviously I was now in baseball mode. I was, you know, playing normal. Yeah. Uh, I left. We met some some uh, classmates at a local bar after class and so on. And uh, the, one of the guys said, hey, when you left, I finally told her who you were. <laughs> what, uh, what was the reaction? <laughs> she just shook her head. So <laughs> he said she just shook her head and that was it. So it, it, it made class more fun. You know, I had a little Jersey swag in there, you know, adding a little twist to it. But, yeah, it was a great story. I, I, I love that. And so did your classmates, did they all know you and realize the yeah, backstory they and they and they never tattled or anything nobody ever told her until the until the end of the class to the end of the semester no one ever told her but they all knew because you know so a couple of people would call me danon and you know there, there's not that many danons in the world especially yeah. on the campus of iowa so it was pretty it was pretty easy for everybody else to pick up but she just didn't pay attention <laughs> you and youngstown state football coach bo polini go way back yeah. You know, what role did he have coaching you in football at Iowa? And and what was that player-coach relationship like? It was very interesting dynamic because I was a very feisty, you know, I got in a lot of fights on the football field. I was a physical receiver. You know, I, you know, I have a dark side on the football side. You know, I got all the smiles and the giggles and the fun stuff. But, I, you know, I got a little dark side uh, when it comes to football. And uh, Bo was the same way. I mean, he was a feisty guy. So we he was played safety. I played receiver. So I would cut block him and crack back, and we would get in fights and battles. And his first coaching job, literally, we played them in November. He turned around and was my receiver coach in January. His first <laughs> job was a GA at Iowa. So he went from Ohio State to Iowa, and then within 60 days, he was coaching me. Uh, fast forward, we had a, we have a great relationship, a great friendship to this day. Uh, he respects me. I respected him. And, we, you know, there was never any hard feelings. It was just competition back then. Fast forward, we play Ohio State that year. So he's our coach now. He comes in. He probably won't want to tell me to tell this story, but too bad. Uh, so he comes in and he tells us some keys about Ohio State and what they do defensively, like he should. He's the coach. And he tells us what trick play will work. So we're playing Ohio State, up in Ohio State, in, in uh, the horseshoe, and we run this trick play. And basically, they come out with a full blitz, and the guy that's supposed to guard the tight end always blitzes, and they figure they'll get to the quarterback before we figure out that the tight end would be wide open. So he dialed it up perfectly, and it was our game-winning touchdown <laughs> against Ohio State in that game, a 70-something-yard 
little dart pass. It was like a five-yard pass that our tight end ran for 70 yards for the winning touchdown in that game. So, Bo, I, that's what I love about Bo. His allegiance was his school, but his allegiance also was his job, and that's why he's been such a, a flourishing coach ever since. Yeah. As we've mentioned, you were a two-sport athlete at Iowa and, and a standout in, in both baseball and football. How did you balance the rigors of both sports and then, you know, I'll throw in the academic part of it too? Yeah, uh, well, I, people always ask me and, and make the assumption that it was hard. And it was challenging, but I wouldn't say it's hard. And the reason why is because that's how I grew up. I played baseball, basketball, and football growing up. I never had an off season, never had off days. You know, we played in high school. Our last regular season game was Thanksgiving morning. We had a Thanksgiving Day game, and our first basketball practice was the day after Thanksgiving. And then basketball went through, and then the first baseball practice was right after. So it was just never-ending for me to play all three sports. So when I got to college, I think a large part of what helped me be successful, helped me stay focused as an athlete and as a student, was I had no days off. If you look at, you know, maybe even the history of college football or histories of different schools where players are academically ineligible, get in trouble off the field, it's usually during the spring season or the summer that that happens. Well, I was playing baseball during the spring, and then I was traveling and playing baseball in the summer. So there was never a time where I had a lot of ample time to kind of get away from what I was focused to do and try to be successful at. So it, although it was challenging to stay on the grind all year long, it was necessary for me because I don't think I would have had the discipline to be the student athlete that I should have been if I didn't do it. You alluded to the, to the dark side, you know, the, this, <laughs> this little bit of fiery, passionate temper that you had. So where did you learn to tone it down after football? <laughs> Well, it it was challenging. One, actually, when I was playing football with the Chiefs, I kind of changed my life around. I, you know, became a Christian young man, uh, father, accepted Christ as my savior. And that changed me a lot. Uh, Now, it was challenging because I, I was trying to balance how do I go and hit people in the head in the name of Jesus on the field type yeah. of thing. And, it you know, it sounds funny. But it was really a challenge because I fought all the time on the field. I, whatever was necessary to do, I was a special teams, kamikaze, running through the wedge block, you know, kickoff coverage, kickoff return, all that stuff. You know, and I would play, you know, 65 plays on offense with the Chiefs. I'd probably play 25 plays as a backup reserve seat receiver, and 20 of them were running plays. So I was I was the guy, Marcus Allen was the running back, and you know, I was the one that was blocking downfield and doing all the physical stuff. And um, so I needed a, I developed a light switch. You know, I developed that before the game, I can be, you know, playing cards with guys in the locker room, talking trash, having fun. But as soon as the our strength coach, Redman, would come into the locker room, he'd say, five minutes, five minutes till game time. And it was like that and it was like okay now it's time for business i hate that person across from me he said something about my mother he kicked my dog he you know he spit on me whatever is necessary i hate him and that's what it was for that 60 minutes until the game was over and then i was able to kind of turn it back off and be that so that development of a light switch kind of helped me regulate 
uh, and allowed me not to have you know any any negative stuff carry over off the field you know socially so it was just one of those things where I, I took the game personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was passionate about the game, passionate about baseball. Um, you know, one of the things I in baseball. So I'm telling you all these stories. <laughs> one, of, one of the things about baseball, when I realized that I probably needed to either go to counseling or I needed to go play football, was I would like scream from center field. You know, like if a guy kind of looked like he was showing up our pitcher, you know, I would scream, "Hit him!" <laughs> Throw at him. Don't do that. You know, so I was kind of had a football stupid mindset in baseball. So I needed either counseling or I needed to go play football. So that's kind of how I transitioned from pro baseball into football. But it was all about that light switch. Do you see some of that same fieriness in your own kids? Because you have five kids and they're all standout athletes. So I, I am one, one other thing you may not know about me. Uh, what has changed the transition of the light switch life has changed into an emotional roller coaster. So I'm an, I'm I like Kelly, you can't sit next to like, I'm either, I can't be in the middle ground, you know, yeah. some the middle ground. Yay. And boo. No, I can't. I gotta be totally silent or I'm a wreck. It's like, it's it. So, you know, I, you know, I'm crying at games and you know, I'm walking around, you know, because when I see, and here it is, when I see glimpses of me, that I lose it. Because I know how much I poured into the game, and I poured into practice, and I poured into being in shape, and poured into my focus and physical stuff. So when I see my kids do it, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I, and so in college, at the college level, you know, you see glimpses, glimpses in high school, but my daughter... Uh, Savvy Hughes, who plays for Truman State, uh, she is the epitome of what I was. So I, she's the one that I most enjoy watching yeah. because I don't have to say anything. I don't have to, you know, you know how some parents give the, you know, try to get eye contact with their kids on the court or, you know, may yell something. I don't have to say a word. So it's kind of, you know, I can just watch and I know exactly what she's thinking. I know exactly what she's wanting to do. She's a setter. So she's like the quarterback. So it's just amazing. And my son plays basketball and he has glimpses of that. But I still feel like, you know, I got to tell him something, you know, hey, you know, shoot the ball more, rip through or give him some, you know, pointers from from the stand. So that emotional roller coaster (laughs) I go through with my kids is real. Yeah. Uh, So. I, the the day I am I'm looking forward to this year they'll both be seniors. Okay. And I already know I'm gonna need like a straight jacket. I'm gonna need some. I'm gonna need a sedative, a straight jacket, a blanket, something. Because this is not it's not gonna be it's gonna be fun, but it's not gonna be fun. So I'm trying to prepare myself two months, two and a half months in advance to be emotionally ready for a senior night. For my two college kids. <laughs> I'm sure they'll appreciate that. <laughs> oh, yeah. You've been coached by some legendary coaches over the years, both in college and at the pro level. Let's start with Coach Hayden Fry. What mm-hmm. impact did he uh, and also his assistant coach, Don Patterson, have on yeah. you? Well, I'll even go further. Coach Fry was, was an amazing coach, legendary, Hall of Fame coach. One great attribute about Coach Fry is that he knew how to coach his coaches 
to coach the players. Mm. So he would rarely get involved in the ins and outs of everyday practice and drills. He would just monitor, and then he would go back and coach his coaches accordingly. Bill Snyder was my first offensive coordinator at Iowa. Okay. And not a slight to Coach Patterson at all, not a slight to anybody, but I learned coming, you know, just a raw kid from city kid from Jersey, I learned so much in that one semester with Bill Snyder that kind of carried me off through the rest of my career. Uh, I I didn't play wide receiver in high school. I played quarterback and I played defensive back. So wide receiver was new for me. Okay. So Coach Snyder kind of set the foundation with attention to detail. You know, he would not he would not let you catch a ball. He wouldn't let the quarterback throw you the ball if you did something wrong on a route. If you went 11 yards instead of 12, if you false stepped off the line of scrimmage, if you stepped in the bucket on your routes, he would he'd tell the quarterback, don't throw it. Hmm. So you would, in order to, to, to try to display your skills to get playing time, you had to do things right on, you know, right as exactly as he wanted to. Coach Patterson took over right after Coach Schneider left for K-State, and then it just kind of elevated from there. And Coach Patterson was uh, uh, integral fo- a force in my life as a mentor and as a coach that just kind of brought the best out of me uh, at a position that I had never played before as a leader on the team. Uh, so yeah, I, it, it's been a joy. It was a joy, obviously, earlier in my tenure. I think I've been doing Missouri Valley football for ten plus years, maybe twelve-ish, I think. Okay. And uh, Coach Patterson obviously was a, a staple at Western Illinois for many of those years. So it was always a treat to be able to get back and and uh, call the games up in Macomb with him on the sideline. But yeah, some legendary coaches indeed. Well, and then we, so then when you get to the Chiefs. You're coached by Marty Schottenheimer. Yes. And yes. how did he shape you not only as a player, but as a man? Well, Marty was great because, you know, I always appreciated coaches that uh, uh, that kind of wore their emotions on their sleeve, that you knew that they cared about you. And Coach Fry was like that. Coach Patterson was absolutely like that. Um, Dwayne Banks, uh, as the Iowa baseball coach, uh, was like that. So I've been very fortunate to have coaches string all the way through pros that really cared about me as a person. And me and Marty clicked. He liked tough, hard-nosed kids. Uh, I remember the first training camp practice, I got in a fight with Dale Carter. Dale Carter is probably one of the best defensive backs to ever play the game, to me. And I played against a lot of them. And I think that's what got me making the team, is that Marty liked the fact that I wasn't afraid he liked the fact that I, you know, I was physical, and we hit it off from the beginning. So I was a captain. He voted me captain four times in my sixth year. Uh, I hadn't even played six games in the NFL, and my second year I was a captain. Um, wow. He and he came up to me on several occasions, like Danon, he come when we're stretching. He's like, Danon, I try to cut you every year, <laughs> and I said, Marty, I'm gonna make it the toughest toughest uh, decision you ever have to make and he just laugh it off and then you know I'd be there lo and behold so great relationship a lot of respect for him and his family my conversation with Dane and Hughes continues in just a second but if you're enjoying this edition of the MVFC first and goal podcast check out all the lineup media group offerings sports and non-sports podcasts now back to the show You were drafted by the Brewers in the third round of the MLB draft after your junior season in college. Uh, How did you end up going the football route then professionally, especially after your senior year, 
I believe you got injured. And so your draft status, you went from projected a second round pick. I think you fell to the seventh round. Yeah. So yeah, I got drafted. I actually got drafted after my sophomore year by the Padres in the 52nd round. Okay. And I turned it down and went back to school. Then after my junior year, and crazy enough, I played the least amount of baseball my junior year because in the fourth game of the season, we were playing against Missouri State, which back then it was Southwest Missouri State. Yeah. And I hit a home run the first at bat. I was batting. I had like four home runs in three games or whatever. I was batting like five-something on a tear. And the next bat, I squared around the bunt, and I got hit in the hand and broke my finger and was out for oh. like 30 games. Oh, wow. I only played like 20 games that okay. junior year, and I got drafted in the third round <laughs> by the Brewers. Uh, so I guess less meant more. Yeah, I guess <laughs> but, so. Uh, I, I guess I didn't have a chance to screw it up. So I got drafted by the Brewers, and um, in the negotiations, I said, the only way I'll sign is if you allow me to finish my senior year of football. And uh, they complied. So. July 31st, I was playing uh, minor league baseball in Helena, Montana. We got snowed out of a game (laughs) July 7th. I remember that. And the next day it was like 90 degrees. But it was beautiful country, great area, great baseball. But July 31st is the cutoff date that I said, all right, see you. I'm going back to college to to get ready for camp and, and play my senior year of football. So I played through my senior year. I got hurt my ankle during my senior season, still played in every game, still started every game, but I wasn't the same. It was like the fourth game of the season. I was in the Heisman watch um, and having a good year until then. Uh, Fast forward through the season, we don't go to a bowl game. I'm getting ready to go to the Hula Bowl and the East-West Shrine game, and working out, I broke my foot. Oh, jeez. I didn't know it was broken. I just thought it was hurt, and I played in the Hula game. I played in the East-West Shrine. And then at the combine, they x-rayed it and saw that it was a fracture. Mm. So, um, I, so I go into the draft. Now there's questions. At that point, there was questions on whether I would play pro baseball and questions now as a wide receiver if I would, you know, recuperate enough to be a functional, fast wide receiver again. So I dropped from the second round to the seventh round because of those questions. Okay. I had surgery four days before the draft. Oh, they, wow. thought it would, they thought it would heal by itself, so they told me to wait. And then the weekend before the draft, my agent said, you got to get surgery. Teams have to see that you already had the surgery and that you're healing. So I had to scramble within literally 24 hours. I had to scramble, find a doctor to do a surgery before the draft, and then be able to get and disseminate the information to all the teams that I was on the rehab and everything went good. So the Chiefs drafted me in the seventh round. I was on practice squad for the first 10 games, and I made my NFL debut on Monday Night Football <laughs> against the Buffalo Bills, who was going to four straight Super Bowls at the time, on Monday Night Football, and as a punt returner, and I had never punt returned in my life. Oh, my gosh. So, so yeah, but that's where baseball came in because Marty came up to me. He's like, hey, Dana, can you punt return? And I said, yeah, of course, yes, yeah. I want to play. But yeah, I can do it. I'll figure it out. And uh, the reason why I was able to be a good punt returner is because I knew how to drop on fly balls in center field. So that kind of helped me. Interesting. So, you know, as you as you just spoke to, you know, 10 weeks on the practice squad to start your rookie year, 
And then by the end of it, you're playing the AFC championship game. Yes. What was the roller coaster of emotions like that first season? Well, you know, obviously it, it was crazy because one, I just assumed that that should happen every year. Yeah. Which obviously it never happened again for the Chiefs. But um, you know, I was playing with Joe Montana, Marcus Allen. I was drafted with Will Shields. Those are three Hall of Famers. Yeah. Derek Thomas was on the team, so there was four Hall of Famers on that team, uh, and we just hit hit a stride, played some tough teams, and won. Unfortunately, that was the last home playoff game that we won in Kansas City history. Wow. It was my rookie year. So 20, 30 years, 25 years ago. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so they've, they've had some some tough times at Arrowhead in the playoffs. Um, but we, we won a, a tough game at Houston when they were when they had Warren Moon and they went 14-2. and two. And then we went to Buffalo again, and we lost in the AFC Championship. So uh, it was tough. Joe Montana got knocked out of that game with yeah. a big concussion before halftime, and um, it was cold. You remember the remember the movie Cool Runnings? Yeah. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> so when we came out, we were playing Buffalo in the AFC Championship, and when we came out of the locker room, we were almost like those dudes when they came out of the airport when the wind and the snow hit them. They just <laughs> stayed inside. That's how cold it was up in uh at, at um in Buffalo. So. I think we were almost beat before we even kicked off because of the weather. So you're playing with these Hall of Famers. What did you learn about success uh, and preparation from, from, from the Joe Montanas, from the Marcus Allens of the, of the world? Well, I learned one from Marcus how to be a pro. Actually, Marcus Allen, you know, he would walk around and when you say, hey, what's up, Marcus? He'd say, hey, what's up, pro? And he would say that to a lot of guys. Not every guy, though, which was also very interesting. He would, he would say it to a lot of guys, but not every guy. Yeah. And But he was a professional, a consummate pro. How he practiced was how he played, literally. He would run to the end zone on every practice rep. Uh, you'd have to wait for him to come all the way back. Um, so his conditioning was phenomenal. Attention to detail, leadership. Joe was cool, calm and cool all the time. Never raised his voice. You know, just what you would say is a picture of a pro. So to be able to have those guys in the offensive huddle with me and me learning from them and learning the speed of the game was amazing. And, and I, I'd like to say I carried some of that at, those attributes along throughout my career, but it was a great way to kind of get baptized in the NFL is to be around those kind of players. Yeah. Arrowhead Stadium, you know, it's considered, if not the loudest, one of the loudest places to play in the NFL. And what stands (laughs) out about playing in that atmosphere week in, week out? The noise. The noise back then was deafening. I mean, it, it didn't really affect us on offense, but when we were on defense and the other team was on offense, when we were on special teams, you couldn't hear the person next to you. And if you go back and Google, there's a game. I think there, we are the last team that was given a penalty because of home crowd noise. Hmm. Against the Denver Broncos, they stopped the game and they warned our fans that if we got any louder, that the offense, we would get a penalty while John Elway was on the field. Wow. And obviously that just stoked everybody to get louder. Yeah. And, and we, I think we wind up getting a penalty. So 
Uh, Arrowhead was amazing. It was kind of a, a graduate step from Kinnick Stadium at Iowa. So I was kind of used to, you know, rabid fans and the noise levels and stuff like that. But I would not have wanted to be an opponent in Arrowhead back then. I never got a chance to play on the other side of the field, uh, obviously playing all six years with, with the Chiefs. But the, the, the rabid fans, they love the Chiefs, past, present. Uh, wherever you are, if you're ever a part of a Chiefs team, they love you here in Kansas City. So it, it was an amazing experience and still has extended for the last 20 years. You entered the NFL in 1993, and I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you spent six seasons in the league? Yes, six okay. seasons. So a lot of pros have trouble making the transition mm-hmm. to post-NFL life. You did not. Why, mm. why is that? Well, I was very fortunate. Like I said, I've been very blessed in my life. And when I spent the last uh, training camp with the New Orleans Saints and I got released, Mike Ditka was the coach. That was a train wreck. (laughs) And um, I got released down there and I went home, prayed with my wife and just realized, you know what? It's time to be done with football. It's time to transition. And I think what a lot of players, the downfall that, a lot of players have in their transition is that they don't know how to cut the cord. And I had a peace of mind that I can be done. I was married, had four kids, four of my five kids at the time, and it was done. And um, so I, was, I, I made a phone call to my agent. I said, hey, I love you. You did a great job for me, but don't call me again, yeah. literally. And, um, and then I called the Chiefs and I said, hey, we're moving back to Kansas City. You have anybody I can talk to about a career? I don't really know what I want to do, but I'm moving back and I'm done with football. And they were help. They were extremely helpful. The Chiefs player programs department uh, with getting me in contact with bankers. And then I spent 14 years in mortgage banking here in Kansas City with U.S. Bank. And uh, in between that, I started a broadcasting career. Yeah. And I've been able to do that for the last 15 plus years, too. So uh, I think that to answer your question, I think. A lot of players, and I saw a lot when I was making the transition that were still trying and fighting and scrapping to get back in the league. You wind up spending a lot of time, a lot of money, and there's no guarantees. And uh, so I was fortunate. And now you also you also work in sales now, too, yeah. for Bennett yeah. Packaging. Yeah, Bennett Packaging has been awesome. I was in U.S. Bank for 14 years. About five years ago, I transitioned into Bennett. So I'm a salesperson. Uh we do everything on boxes and displays and pictures and, and uh, packaging. So uh, it's been awesome to be a part of it. And it's been a blessing because the ownership there, the management there understands, you know, what I do on television and radio and the travels. So they're open to it. Uh, obviously, it's about production. So I still am able to mix and mingle. And that's kind of my thing. You know, I like to, you know, interact with people. I like to connect with different people. I don't mind having these kind of conversations with people. A lot of companies want to hear some of these stories. And and if I can provide a product, whether back then it was a mortgage or now it's a box or a package or a display that you see in, you know, many retail stores that we do, um, it's great. So I work with some large companies and Coca-Cola and, and, uh, you know, some other companies all around the country that use, use regular boxes, brown boxes, different colors. And the cool thing is, you know, you probably walk by boxes. Everybody walks by boxes and stuff every single day, stackers and pallets and pallet skirts. 
and you don't realize how big of an industry it is. And so it's been a blessing to be a part of. Yeah. You've talked about the broadcasting you do for football, but for people that don't know, you also, you're an analyst for Missouri Valley Conference basketball games. You're an analyst in the Big Ten for baseball. What is it about broadcasting that's been such a good fit for you? Well, it was my major in college. I graduated with that degree. Um, you know, from the time that I started getting interviewed as a player at college, I started to grow with a comfort in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I can speak well and I can relay uh, aspects of the game in a way that people can enjoy. It. I can break it down in a way that a kid can watch and understand and an adult can watch and understand. And so I think the natural progression was to get into broadcasting and, and Mike Kern and, and the people at Missouri Valley Football Conference have been awesome about keeping me on uh, every single year. And uh, the Chiefs opened the doors up for me to be a part of their program. Multiple radio stations here in Kansas City have me do segments, come in and sit in on for holidays and do hours at a time. Uh, and then the Big Ten Network came, came about 10 years ago. And they needed some baseball analysts, and somebody referred me. And uh, I went on, and now I do probably more baseball than I do football, which is weird because most people <laughs> know me for my, for my NFL career. Yeah. So, but baseball has always been my first love. It's still my first love. Uh, I love everything about baseball. I coach baseball, 16- and 17-year-old travel teams. Um, have a lot of kids that have been drafted or go to college to play baseball. So the science of the game of baseball is awesome, and the action of the game of football is awesome. And basketball has a little bit of mixture in there, too. So it's been fun. You're married. You mentioned the five kids. You also have three yep. grandkids. How do, yep. how do all, not only your, your own kids, but the grandkids, how do they all keep you grounded? Well, I've been trying to get my senior citizen discount at McDonald's. <laughs> what is it, like the Golden Sea? But they won't give it to me. I don't know what it's about. But, uh, yeah, my, my wife has been incredible. You know, she's from Jersey. I'm from Jersey. We live out here in Kansas City. Our oldest daughter is 31 years old. Our youngest daughter is 17. We have uh, three kids, three girls, two boys okay. uh, total. My oldest son served in Afghanistan. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he served in Af Afghanistan, and now he works here in Kansas City. My two middle kids are in college playing sports, and then my youngest is on her way to college next year to play volleyball at Truman State. So we'll have the trifecta at Truman State <laughs> after next year and um, and then the three grandkids coming up behind them. So we've been truly, truly blessed uh, to, to have the family support. And in reality, for a long time, we, we didn't have anybody else out here in Kansas City. All of our family was in New Jersey. Okay. Uh, we now have my wife's side of the family, her sister, nephews, and, my, and her grandmother that live here with us. But... Um, you know, other than that, it's just been about us being out here and being our own family support for each other. So we're a close-knit family, you know, just truly blessed. Yeah. You were invited to be a Kansas City Chiefs ambassador. How did that come about, and, and what does that entail? Well, Chiefs ambassador is a, is a cool group. Lamar Hunt, the former owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, you know, basically he's the man that's responsible for the Super Bowl. He's the man that's responsible for a lot that has gone on in the NFL since the beginning of time. Yeah. He really was strong in players being a part of the community. 
So if you look back on films and, and you know, YouTube and games in, in the 90s, you see all around the ring of the, of the fan of the stadium, everybody's foundation, everybody's charity, uh, pictures, kids, all that stuff that all the fans got to see. Oh, wow. Kevin Lockett uh, does some work for Genesis School and, and Dale Carter does this work out in the community and Derek Thomas is third and long foundation raising money for kids and different different uh different things well the ambassadors is a former chiefs and we have guys that played for the dallas texans okay before they came became the the kansas city chiefs and all the way so we have six decades five six or five decades of players that have been a part of the chiefs organization in some way so 45 of us or so and we still do charity work, still do work in the community. So it's kind of a an offshoot of what we did as a player that Lamar Hunt allowed us, and now Clark Hunt allows us to keep going and be connected to the Chiefs organization. So the ambassadors were, you know, golf tournaments, speaking engagements, autograph sessions, parties. We do it all. That's awesome. You're not afraid to speak up. And, and to stand up for issues that are important uh, yeah. on social media, whether it's racial inequality, domestic violence, women's rights. Um, you you don't just stick to sports. And I, that's one thing I really appreciate about you um, because I always feel like you're posting stuff. I don't always agree with everything you say, but I, I learn from stuff you post um, and it's good to get the different perspectives. So why is it so important for you to use your voice? Uh, and I think you hit the nail on the head is that, you know, a lot of times people think that you have that, whether it's myself or anyone else, especially with social media, that I am trying to sway you. Yeah. I'm trying to make you, uh, uh, you know, an image of my thoughts or my ideals or my beliefs when really it's just about a different perspective. And so I feel like God has blessed me with the ability to relay a message, whatever it is about football, baseball, socially, my kids, whatever, disciplines, um, in a way that people will at least understand the perspective. And so I've been very vocal about whether it's um, politics or whatever from a different perspective. Okay, so the kneeling that's happening, you know, let, let me reiterate that it's not about the flag. It's not about the military. My son served in Afghanistan. Yeah. It's about the things that have gone on systemically throughout history uh, in this country as it pertains to racial uh, inequalities. Just understand the perspective. Don't you, uh, I'm not saying that your parents and grandparents were terrible people. Just understand the perspective and the position that different people that may not look like you may have. Yeah. Uh, you know, with women rights. You know, I, I was on a group text with the guys. I said, you know, a lot of what happens has happened with women. It's all of our fault, men. We're, I mean, you know, let's wear, let's wear the responsibility of what, how we treated women in the 40s and 50s and 60s when they couldn't vote and they couldn't do and they didn't have and they don't make as much. Let's wear the responsibility. To me, that's the first thing before you, before you start healing, you have to wear responsibility and be accountable. And um, that perspective, obviously, just like racial stuff, doesn't it kind of rubs people wrong sometimes they don't want to wear they don't want to have that kind of uh responsibility and humility so i'm vocal about it with friends back home i have a lot of policemen who are friends i have you know i just interact and i i feel like 
you know, if we can't have conversations about things, then there's never going to be growth. And we don't, the, the, the number one phrase that seems to have been lost on our country is let's just agree to disagree. We can walk, you should be able to walk away from every conversation <laughs> with, well, I see what your point is, but I'm just going to agree to disagree. And that be it. We don't have to come to blows. We don't have to hate each other. We just agree to disagree and walk away. But you learn something in those conversations. So, you know, my point with using my platform that way is I want to honestly be able to look at my kids and my grandkids in the face in 10, 20, 40 years and say, you know what? I tried. Yeah. I tried to fill in the blank. I tried to use my platform in a way to help this country be different or change some perspectives of people in my neighborhood, in Kansas City, back in New Jersey, police officers, firemen, you know, polit political, that I try, if I could plant a seed in one person's mind that's different, that might change the, the whole fabric of their family and their thoughts. And, um, you know, no matter what happens going on in this world, there's always going to be black people. There's always going to be white people. There's always going to be Asians. There's always going to be every ethnicity. Um, so we might as well figure it out. It's so important, too, because your experiences, and, and we've talked about this before, your experiences as a black man are different than mine as a white female. I just yeah. There's just some things you've been through that I have never had to deal with in my life and certain things I, as a female in sports, I had to go through that you wouldn't have had to deal with. Exactly. And there's things that my kids will go through and have gone through or they need to be aware of, um, you know, for, for white America, good, bad, right or wrong, indifferent, whatever. There's certain things that you have to tell your 17 year old kid when they first get their license mm -hmm. that I have to tell more to my seven year old, 17 year old kid. That's life. Yeah. Whether it happens to him or not, it's, it's evident in what the society that we live in. Uh, you know, being aware of your surroundings. I grew up in Jersey where you paid attention to everything that went on because you didn't want to be caught off guard. But my kids grew up in suburban Kansas City. They don't have they don't walk to school. They don't walk to the store. They don't have to pay attention to alleyways and different things like that. And so there's a perspective that they will never understand unless I teach them. And there's a perspective of white America, women, you know, whatever fill in the blank person that they may not see or ever be a part of unless I'm open to the conversation. Uh, and it's going to be different. It's not going to be the same. And who knows how much better it will be, but I don't think we should be resigned. And I hate the statement that a lot of people make when you have these deep conversations, when they say it is what it is. No, it might be what it is now, but it doesn't have to be that going forward. And you can go home and tell your kid, this is wrong. You know, bias is wrong. Racism is wrong. And here's what here's what they're saying. Here's what I spoke to a guy named Danon Hughes who told me these things. And I believe him. He has integrity and he's not, you know, doing stupid stuff in, in, in a, a society. And maybe we can learn as a family about that. You can tell me stuff about being a white woman in broadcasting or wherever. And I can learn from that because as a that's a perspective that I would never experience. So, you know, uh, you know, the Bible says is iron sharpens iron. So one man uh, uh, sharpens another. So that's what I believe. You know, that this next question is probably I know you will have an opinion on it. The, the new NFL helmet and roughing the passer rules have been extremely controversial. 
as a former wide receiver and return specialist, what is your opinion? All right, hold on, Kelly. <laughs> See this thing? Yeah. This is the helmet, right? Yes. This is my head. Yeah. See how close this helmet is to my shoulder? Mm -hmm. It's not possible to hit somebody with your shoulder without the head being hit first. So NFL fans, whoever <laughs> think that it's the easiest thing in the world, try hitting a moving target that's trying not to allow you to hit them or trying to run you over, can make the slightest adjustments <laughs> at a split second without these, what, what would you say, between my head and my shoulder is about eight inches? Yeah. But to, by these eight inches, that one of these will not be affected in that tackle or that hit. It's impossible. So there's my, there's my, you know, <laughs> my PowerPoint. You know, I don't have a laser PowerPoint or anything, but that I hate it. I, I understand it. Yeah. But I think um, there's a knee-jerk reaction to what the NFL did not pay attention to back when I played and years before, and now they're trying to overcome that, and they're doing it in not a very good way. Um, the bigger part, and I've tweeted about this as well, is the money that they take away from players for doing something that's unreasonable or expecting something that's unreasonable. There's a kid that got a $20,000 fine for hitting a quarterback correctly, I would say. Yeah. Every way that you would ever teach a Pop Warner kid all the way through the NFL on how to tackle, he got fined $20,000. Players don't make $20,000 during the preseason. So he basically paid, paid to play in the NFL that week, or he played for free. For free. To me, that's an atrocity. Yeah. And the fact that the NFL wants to make it seem like, well, all the money goes to charity. It doesn't go to my charity. It goes to a charity that the NFL decides. You're taking money out of my pocket. If I was a defensive player in the NFL, I would strike. I would want to lead a revolt and a, pro a protest against the NFL because these rules are unreasonable. You're taking money out of the players' pockets and you're expecting them to do something that cannot be done, and they shouldn't stand for it. That's why you're seeing the Khalil Max, the Ed, uh, the was it Thomas in uh, Seattle safety. You're seeing a lot of these players uh, either retire or hold out for more money because they realize that their value will never be the same because of the rules. Yeah. So these guys holding out, wanting more money now because they know that their careers could be cut short because either they're going to hurt themselves going slow, trying not to uh, fill in a blank hit, or they're going to be obsolete in a few years. Aaron Donald not signed a contract yet. All these stars that are either playing on, on borrowed money or not playing on, on their valued money because the rules don't lend itself to that. So. So what do you think, since the NFL is overcompensated so much, what do you think is the solution long-term to all, you know, all the CTE and the concussion, you know, it's all, it all ultimately stems from that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, here's my, what I would have thought that the NFL would have done and should have done mm, 10 years ago when everything started to come out about concussions and the movie came out, what, five, six years ago or so with Will Smith, they should have came on and said, we dropped the ball for years, for decades. We didn't realize the impact 
we didn't treat it as we should have once we did realize it. Here's what we'll do. Every NFL city and major league city, you will have three to five psychologists and psychiatrists that you can go to any day of the week as often as you need if you're a former player. Uh, you will get the proper treatment for free with those places if you or your spouse or your family feels like you are uh, declining in you know, your mental stabilities. Um, going forward, this is what we'll do with the, with the rules of the game. As far as it is on the game day, to me, you should have, just like in, in college football, you have a replay booth that if, if the speed of the game is so fast, it's impossible for a referee that's standing still to judge whether you had ill intent or not ill intent, whether you used your helmet as a weapon or so on. Have a, somebody in the booth, guy throws a flag on the field, before the flag lands, there's somebody in the booth that's already looking back at that play to be able to say, yeah, that was just normal football or that was a targeting and then assess the penalty and then justify the fine afterwards. The NFL seems to be taking an easy route by knee jerk reaction with these players and the referees on the field in the preseason throwing flags on every play, no receiver, you know, defending a defenseless receiver, garbage, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think they've opened a door that was unnecessary and it'll affect the game. It'll affect the players uh, for years to come unless they make the necessary adjustments. Dana and I've kept you almost an hour, which was not oh. my intention. <laughs> um, anything else that you would like to share that you think is important to know? Uh, I'd go back to Missouri Valley football. It's going to be exciting. Another exciting year. I'm amped up for it. I'm encouraging all your your followers and listeners to make sure they tune in. Uh, I'm very interactive even during the game on Twitter and Facebook with pictures from the booth and comments and stuff like that. So join us for the full experience of Valley football starting in September. So I'm excited about it. So that, that's probably my last piece. Football is a great game. It's flourishing, contrary to what people think, <laughs> the NFL and they, they feel like they hear or see on different publications. The NFL is king. It's going to remain to be king. And that's from a baseball dude in me. So I know it. So I think everybody else should know it. Well, Dana and I will see it in a couple of weeks and uh, look forward to amping things up and, you know, more, more stories to come in the car rides, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. If you like what you heard from Dana and Hughes in our MVFC First and Gold podcast, please do us a favor and share, subscribe, and leave a review. Lineupmedia.fm also is home to many other sports podcasts, shows like Bleacher Bums, 11th Inning Stretch, and Performance Nation. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Go Chiefs! Go Chiefs, yes! <laughs> Tune in next week for another episode of Valley Football's First and Goal with Kelly Bird, the official podcast of the Missouri Valley Football Conference, only on the lineupmedia.fm network. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere you get your podcasts. This podcast was a presentation of lightupmedia.fm.